Decarcerating prisons and jails must become the new normal. Locking up someone in jail because they can't afford it cannot remain the status quo. Thank you for tuning in to the final episode of The Steep Road to Freedom, a limited series podcast devoted to unpacking the complexities of bail reform in the state of Ohio. Our goal was to provide a shared understanding of the problem of cash bail, equating our audience with organizers and advocacy experts demanding transformative changes in power and policy. You've been with us as we've outlined the mechanics of bail reform, anchoring the audience to share definitions, naming the players involved, describing our policy platform in non-legal terms, and settling debates around reform trends like risk algorithms. We offered some history around Ohio's addiction to incarceration and connected our steep roaders to the compelling stories and often harrowing experiences nestled at the heart of the campaign. Ohioans directly impacted by the trauma of mass incarceration. Our goal was for our listeners to leave with a renewed sense of hope and clarity around our vision of justice. Calling for bail reform is simply not enough. We need a comprehensive overhaul of our current system with alternatives distinguished by procedural safeguards meant to end the criminalization of poverty and divert most people away from the carceral state whenever possible. Not to mention, our world looks completely different since we launched last year. 2020 brought us a global pandemic in the form of COVID-19 and renewed attention to police violence and structural racism following the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Armoud Arbery. Rest in power. Over a million people took to the streets globally, an impassioned outcry condemning generations of state-sanctioned violence at the hands of law enforcement that is now coupled to demands for changes in policy and political representation. And in real time, millions of us are relearning America's somber history, one defined by its construction of the haves and have-nots, who holds access, who is denied privilege, and who is deemed innocent under an often harsh gaze of the law. And we can't forget that just this summer, a grand jury indicted Larry Householder, former Ohio Speaker of the House, on a federal racketeering conspiracy involving $60 million to uphold a billion-dollar nuclear plant bailout. Sounds like thrilling political fiction. While the revolution continues, cash bail continues to lock people in jail based on their bank account balance. As we speak, nearly 19,000 people in Ohio are held in jails because they're too poor to pay their way out. And those remain especially vulnerable due to the impossibility of social distancing in chronically overcrowded prisons and jails. This journey, or steep road, if you will, demonstrates that the cash bail system lays at the foundation of Ohio's longstanding history of criminalizing Black and Brown communities. I want to mention one last update since we last checked in. In November of 2019, the ACLU of Ohio and 40 other progressive organizations submitted changes to Criminal Rule 46, an administrative rule establishing bail procedures for all state courts in Ohio. We believed this was an important opportunity to provide guidance to judges or set of standards that they must follow to promote the release of people before trial. So, Melecta, what happened after we submitted that comment? The Ohio Supreme Court Justice Maureen O'Connor convened a task force to review the submitted comments, comments from organizations like ours and the bail bond industry. 
This panel consisted of 24 members, including the ACLU of Ohio, the Ohio Bail Bondsman Association, county and municipal judges, and members of the state legislature. After months of edits and internal convenings, a final version of the rule was filed with the General Assembly. And what do we think of that final version? It's clear that while Criminal Rule 46 made slight language improvements, however, without significant changes or companion legislation, the changes won't translate to real impact on the ground. What we need isn't feel-good language. We need systemic change. It sounds like our suggested amendments to the rule was a tactic as one among many. Either way, we still need to animate a base of supporters to force the legislature to move on this issue. Exactly. Consider Criminal Rule 46 as a mobilization victory, a declaration of cash bail as a system no longer fit for the Ohio we must all reimagine. We need a bail bail or bail reform legislation to fund pretrial services. Remember, pretrial services are responsible for programs like call and texting reminders of court dates, provide mandates for judges, and demand political accountability to follow through on establishing alternatives to jail and prison. So Mel, as a final farewell, let's go through some of our listeners' favorite moments. Take a listen. Uh, you know, it was damn near hell. People were confined in their cells most of the days. You know, I mean, it didn't really matter to me because outside your cell, there's nothing but a tiny TV with the same four or five channels, you know, that, that are, you know, hard to hear because people were making all kinds of noise. And, you know, just the, the sound, the sound within that facility is just very distorted. So, you know, you're kind of like echoey noises and it's hard to hear, you know, that TV when you're trying to watch it. There's no seats in there. It was a tiny screen. You know, the meals there were very meager and, you know, I heard there was vermin and expired food, you know, rats were crawling around uh, throughout the kitchen and, and, and the jail. And, you know, it was just kind of a very unsanitary place, you know. And had I been able to get out from the county jail on a personal bond or, you know, without a stringent cash bond, I would have been able to make an appearance in Parma for that misdemeanor. And it, you know, would have been a lot more doable versus, you know, being in county, you're stuck, you know, your housing is in jeopardy, your job's in jeopardy. And so I got out, you know, my job was gone, my housing was gone, and, you know, it created a, a, a state of homelessness. It's a domino effect, you know. I'm still finding my footing, to be honest with you. I just, you know, was out for 10 days. As my story um, I wrote for the ACLU online says, I was out for 10 days. And then I was sentenced by the judge that December 20th, which was, you know, the first time I seen the judge. It, it's been tough, but, you know, I've been, you know, staying strong, you know, just working and honestly just trying to get back involved in the more activism, things like this, because I've been, you know, gone away from the scene for a while. But I used to, you know, be involved with different coalitions, groups around the community. I shouldn't give up hope. You know, I know there's people uh, such as, you know, the ACLU that work for, you know, people like us. And, you know, we got to work for us. And so I appreciate, you know, being able to speak on this and, you know, people hearing my story out. And just know that, you know, you're not alone. You know, we're, we're all in this together. And so. so we believe in limited government when it comes to taxes, regulations and other things. So we should obviously care about limited government when 
the government can use violence against its citizens, when it can lock people up, when it can arrest people. And so I think that that's part of it. There's obviously a cost savings to it. We spend a ton of money on our criminal justice system. Just in Ohio, we're spending close to $2 billion a year just on our prison system. That doesn't include the cost of police, courts, and other features in our criminal justice system. And so I think that those two things have really helped get conservatives talking about criminal justice reform and also just the barriers to prosperity. We have people who who make um, some mistakes early in their lives, and then we hold them against it for the rest of their lives. They have a conviction on their record, and which makes it hard for them to get employment, hard for them to find housing, education, things that will really better themselves and better Ohio. So whereas now, if it's based entirely on cash and we're holding people for $200, $500, that's really not doing anything for public safety. And in fact, even if they could theoretically afford it, that doesn't make them any more or less safe. The amount of money a person deposits with a court or with a bail bondsman does not increase their public safety in the community. It just means that somebody else was transferred their funds for either a short period of time or if it's to a bail bondsman permanently, regardless of the outcome of their trial. I was arrested in 2017. A guy came to my home. He wanted to attack my 14-year-old, and he attacked me in the process. He got hurt. I complied with the law. As soon as I defused the situation, I called the police. The detectives came. They spoke with me. They released me. They told me that I wouldn't be arrested. A few days later, I was picked up by the marshals and told that I did too much to protect my home. Okay, as I cooperated and and told my story and offered them the truth and the resolution, they used that against me and said to protect my situation that I would be incarcerated until my trial and a $75,000 bail, which was two times my yearly income at that time, would be, would be imposed upon me to be released with no 10%. So I had to sit in jail three months, but I had medical issues, and I sat there without the proper medical treatment. Being a single parent with your child every day, to be stripped away from him and him stripped away from me, because of the $75,000 ransom that I could not afford, my family could not put together, I had to sit in the county jail and was going from 240 pounds to 180 pounds. He initially told me I was a menace to society and I was a threat to the community. And then my attorney reminded him, you're looking at Mr. Parks in this orange jumpsuit. You're not looking at the community activists for 20 years. The ex-gang member who's been nationwide marching and, and resolving issues. So once you say we have all these particulars and you don't remove that high bail or let me out, that tells me that it's profit over people. It's profit over what's right. Around January, me and a couple of people, we went at someone's house, took a couple of things. I was arrested in Cleveland Heights, held on two, I was actually held on three felonies with a bond of 40000 $40,000. Yes. Your bond was $40,000. Yes, it was. Um, I was then transferred to the Cuyahoga County Jail, where my bond then dropped to 10% of 10000 I, in fact, had the bail money, but I didn't have no one to help me bail me out. So, like, you know, to bail yourself out, you got to have that, uh, like, insurance. And I didn't have a signer. 
I, I had three pre-trials while I was sitting in jail and I was unable to attend any of them. Um, I didn't know what was going on. I only see my public defender one time, so I really didn't know what was going on with my case until on March 8th, I was taken upstairs and I was waiting in the courtroom and my attorney had said that he had found some people to pay for my bail to bail me out. At the time, I didn't know who or what was going on. So the next day I was taken back upstairs and that's where I met Kareem and Alana. And they basically told me what they were about and how everything was going to go. And I was bailed out and I was able to get my social security card, able to get a job, sign up for school, able to see what was going on with my case, talk to my lawyer, get um, letters from anybody I needed. I was able to change my appearance actually, so I looked better in front of the judge. Yes, I thought that if I pled guilty that, you know, maybe I'll get released early or I didn't want to go to trial because I already knew they were going to send me straight to jail, but I pled guilty. So thinking that maybe, okay, if I plead guilty, I'll get out early or at least get on probation or house arrest or something. But what my judge actually said to me, like he had told me that I had looked better during my sentencing, that I had looked better than I did when I, he first saw me in the courtroom. So just imagine what all the judge thinks. You just coming straight from out of the jail into the courtroom in your jail jumpsuit and the handcuffs. It's, well, you already look like a criminal, so for me, whatever is placed upon you, that's what's placed upon you. Honestly, it's systemic racism. I mean, Black people in general, right, are overly represented in the criminal justice system. We know that the prison industrial complex, there's been multiple studies on the school to prison pipeline, cradle to prison pipeline. But then when you think of Black women, of course, Black women are going to be a part of that same demographic because they're Black. And what we see is that oftentimes when Black women are incarcerated, they're incarcerated for domestic violence, sex trafficking, drug abuse, minor theft and nonviolent offenses, right? When Black women are arrested, they are disproportionately given higher bonds mm -hmm. than white women. That is across the board. Ironically, the incarceration, like the amount of crimes that's being committed, Black women are is decreasing amongst Black women. So Black women are committing less crimes. However, they are still overly represented in prison than white women. Black women are oftentimes single mothers, and they are basically, most of the time, the breadwinners of their household. So when you remove the Black woman and you give her this high bond that she's unable to pay for, that means that she's more likely to have her children taken away from her, lose her job, and her actual uh, family, and thus the community crumbles and falls because she has been incarcerated. Also understanding that the bedrocks of this nation is systemic racism and attacks on people, especially marginalized people. Keeping those things in the back of your mind all the time, but also asking people what it is that they want, what is their experiences, and listening to them. Because people are experts in their own experiences, not just because they have went to school for something, but because this is actually their lived experiences. So when you talk about organizing, you're giving people who have for generations been told that they are powerless. So you have to think a lot of these people, even when they want to have power, they are coming up in a society that they have been so disempowered. Allow them to share their stories, allow them to talk about it and believe them when they say it and to make room and to make space for them. Across the state right now, in the name of public health and safety, people are being released from jail. So what it's taught us is Whenever this pandemic calms down, 
we need to fight against the suggestion that might be made that we need to recarcerate in the name of public health and safety. That doesn't make sense. We've demonstrated that all of these people who are held in jail were there unnecessarily. There has been no stories of increased threats or violence now that all of these people have been released. And that makes sense because as this podcast has over and over again discussed, our current criminal legal practices don't promote public safety. They just promote wealth-based detention. What we are criminalizing in this country isn't culpability or guilt, it's poverty. And so all the decarceration measures that have occurred in response to the pandemic demonstrate these people did not have to be in jail in the first place. You know, so when at the time when you say bail and the system says you are innocent until proven guilty, but your bond is set before you're proven guilty, you know, so how am I innocent? But if it, based on the crime or the offense, it determines your bond, you know, how high some people, some of these counties, no matter what speed and jaywalking, you know, they might have, oh, it's $500, whatever mm-hmm. it is. They just, I don't know how they pick these numbers, but, you know, so now people have to try to come together. So the people are hurt and affected by the bond. You might have a job and now you can't get out on bond. Now you might miss work and then you might get fired. So then the workplace is affected, you know, so it's just a lot of different things that can go wrong. So doing a, a life sentence is different than doing three years or four years, you know. So the difference, one of the biggest differences is when you got four years, you know, you know, you're going home, you have that. So but when you're doing a life sentence, there's no certainty. So I had been reading and studying and all of these things because I wanted to make myself a better person. You know, I just wanted I knew I wasn't the monster that people had probably thought or said at one point. You know, my crime didn't determine who I was, you know. So with that said, I started to become a mentor inside the prison. You know, I was in programs like the version, Ohio's version of Scared Straight. You had the Ray program at different prisons and Heart to Heart at Grafton, where I spent 16 years. So that's where I was starting to have conversations with young folks. And a lot of times I found out that a lot of people grew up just like I did. No father figure, none of that. So I could have been bitter and just thought about myself. But at some point I said, you know what? I might never leave. So what I can do is help while I'm in there. Try to help these young guys, not necessarily become their father. But what I try to do is just offer advice and help. You know, so I just wanted to give back. That was the only way I could give back at the time. Start thinking, what if? Because one slip and anybody could be there. You know, start looking into whatever it is, and put yourself in someone's shoes. And I think that makes us better people in my eyes. When you put yourself in someone else's shoes, you know, it kind of like a a sense of empathy or sympathy. And you can kind of relate like, wow, you know what? That could have been my son. Mm -hmm. That could have been my daughter. That could have been me. Art and activism has always been hand in hand. I don't care what time when you go, you know, because art is something that can spark a conversation. People will look at it and be like, well, what do you see? You know, you can look at a Caravaggio and be like, what's going on? Why do the figures look twisted? You can look at Basquiat, who people didn't understand. You look at his artwork and be like, he was always putting a message. He was always talking about the system, the government, Black people, you know, and, and different artists, they depict what they see. 
in their eyes and in their view. And that's what I want to do. I want to put art out there where I might not always be able to sit down and have a conversation with people like we haven't. Mm -hmm. So if I put an art piece out there and people can look at it and then it's like for that moment, they in my world, they can sit and try to figure out, they're figuring out what was I thinking at the time I did that. And that means something to me. That's powerful because especially when I'm doing a piece that's a message and it's a message that I'm not going to put any words on the piece. I want you to look and tell me what you see, what you think, you know, so that's why through art, I want to try to put messages out there. That rate, it's still being felt today. I mean, we have an office in Norwalk now. We're still dealing with the ripple effect of the raid and how it impacted the families. And one of the biggest ways besides separating the parents from the children and deporting, you know, many people from the community was the financial impact, the economic impact on a group of people who are already living on the margins, doing farm work. So Mm -hmm. let's say somebody gets, is surveilled, they're targeted by ICE, they get arrested and they get booked. What does that bail process look like? So the raid, the people were picked up, they were booked by the Border Patrol first, and then after a couple of days, they're transferred to ICE custody. And then they need to communicate with their families. So you got to start putting money in commissary. So if I want to put in $20 into the commissary so they could talk to their families, it's going to be $27, right? Because of the fees. So the fees got to be so excessive. Then you have to, you know, retain an attorney. Depending on the case, it's, you know, $1,500, anywhere to $5,000 or even more. And that usually has to be paid up front before the case goes to court. Then they're sitting in the detention center waiting for a bond hearing date. And um, that in itself, because of the backlog right now, is about three weeks that you're just sitting there just waiting for your court just for the bond. Then the judges in Cleveland are known for, again, exorbitantly high bonds. That's what they're known for. So the bonds are going, you know, there were a few $5,000 bonds, but most of them were 7500 to 20000 25000 And that is not 10%. You have to pay that whole amount. And again, this is just for the people who are eligible. Many people were not eligible and they were just summarily deported. If you don't have the bond money, there are some companies that will be happy to give you immigration bonds, but they charge enormous amount of interest, like 40%, and you have to agree to wear an ankle monitor. So the options are very limited. The other one that's even more complicated is if you have a charge like driving without a license, for example, and then you're picked up by the police, and then the police take you to jail, then they notify ICE. So what could happen there is ICE will pick you up and detain you before you even had your day in court on the driving without a license charge. They might deport you before you even had a chance to address that. And so what happens is you now have a warrant for your arrest that stays on your record because you didn't show up in court. Unless you have somebody very motivated that's able to notify the court that you were deported so you can attend. Or let's say you weren't detained and you're just going to court for your hearing. ICE has been waiting outside of the courtrooms to pick you up either outside or inside or a week after your court. But the bottom line is they're scouring those court dockets and matching them with a database. They call it Operation Crosscheck. 
And if they see that you have any glitch in your immigration pass, they will come and pick you up. You know, a lot of those indicators that are personal socioeconomic indicators in the risk assessment tool are pretty good proxies for poverty. And so what you found is if you just looked at the data, what you saw is that the people who got released from jail, they had much lower indigent scores than the people who were remained detained in jail. The people who remain detained are much more likely to have those indicators of poverty. And if you actually look at the total risk score, on average, about two-thirds of the measures that make up that risk score were the poverty measures. So a bigger factor in determining risk was actually, it was more about you as an individual than it was about any sort of prior criminal behavior or failures to appear in the system. The number of points you got for not having a job or for not having a car or for not graduating from high school, those added up to the point where you couldn't even be considered what would be termed low risk. So even though these people might have had no criminal justice record in the past at all, you could accumulate enough points simply by having those characteristics of poverty that you would be considered a medium risk in their system. So the whole concept of risk is somewhat problematic because in that case, it wasn't really even talking about risk based on prior criminal justice experience. It was just based on you as an individual. You know, I think most judges have good intentions. The magistrates are trying to make decisions. They don't have a lot of time. They don't have a lot of information. And they're trying to do the best they can. But the reality is because we had no way of sort of measuring what they were actually taking into account, it's not surprising that all sorts of inconsistencies would creep in, some of that based on race, gender, class, all sorts of other factors that could affect the decisions that judges make. The idea behind risk assessment was that, well, maybe we could come up with a way of using a standardized set of criteria that judges could go through or, or pretrial services agencies could go through to create a checklist of factors that might be correlated with future failure to appear or future offending. And I mean, the argument was that that might be better than money. You know, so at least it's not a gut and at least it's not money because with the gut, then you don't know what's going on with money. You're relying on just their ability to pay. And so the idea was maybe we could move toward risk assessment. What they're most interested in in risk assessment is predicting offending. I mean, that's what they're really worried about. And they're really worried in particular about violent offending. So what you'll often hear is an anecdote about how somebody got out of jail on bail and they went out and committed some horrific offense. But the problem is those are very rare events and we're not very good at predicting them. So one of the problems with risk assessment is, is that you're trying to predict the future and it's really hard to do that. So for example, there was recently a validation study of Kentucky. A pretrial service agency uses a risk assessment. I think it's the one that was created by the Arnold Foundation. And they published an assessment of how well this tool did in predicting failure to appear and predicting reoffending. And also they have a flag for violence, for trying to predict violence while out on pretrial release. And it didn't perform very well. What this report said is that somehow it had good predictive validity, but the reality is it wasn't very accurate. But it turns out that of the people who got that flag, who were predicted to commit or be arrested for a violent crime, only 3% of those people actually committed or was arrested for the violent crime. And so what that means is that you would be doing that to 100 people and wrongly flagged 97 people to appropriately flag three people. And so then the question is, well, is that acceptable? 
hardly anybody gets rearrested for violence. It doesn't really matter whether they got the flag or not. And so depending on how you present that information to judges can have a big effect on the way they think about risk. And if the society is racially biased, then the model itself will be racially biased. But ultimately, all the items that go into the model, the algorithm for risk assessment, are, are the product of subjective decisions. It's about, uh, you know, if there are racial differences in policing, if there are racial differences in adjudication, any of those differences um, will show up. And if that information is used in the model, that will, by definition, sort of perpetuate those racial biases. And so one of the concerns with risk assessment is that by putting this veneer of sort of quantitative analysis, using math, you know, using science makes it look more certain and more scientific and objective than it really is. The bond over here, he gets arrested in juvenile. You know, we was going through the court here. The, I guess it's like the pretrial or stuff like that until he got bonded over. His lawyer had hired a therapist, a doctor from a hospital to do his assessment because she felt as though he shouldn't have been bonded over. Mm-hmm. So she hired him and he just was like, how are you going to bond over a 15-year-old that don't even have a prior record? The prosecutor had the bill at five. He wanted the bill to be $500,000. $500,000 yes. for someone who is 15 years old mm-hmm. bonded over yep. $500,000. Yeah, that's what he bail. wanted it to be. Now, recently, me and his dad, you know, we actually think he'll do better at home until he finishes his trial, yeah. you know. So I would prefer him to be home, yeah. you know, until he gets done with his court hearing. Because I, sometimes I fear the worst. So I want to spend as much as time with him as I can, you know, while he's only still 15. He's not a flight risk. He's not going to go anywhere. Like he knows he gets threats in jail all the time. It's frustrating. And, you know, it's a lot of people, you know, it's a lot of money, money that we don't have. You know, it's a struggle every day. You know, you barely pay your bills. You know, you barely paying your rent. And it's like, when you get so much a high of a bond like that, like, and that, and you know that that's the only way your child ever to come home, it's depressing. Like, it's depressing. In order for change to really happen, it's going to come from our constituents, for community members coming up, meeting with us, talking with us. And so I think that people have to be educated and empowered to be able to do that, to have those real conversations, to hold people accountable to the things that they say they're going to do. So if there is going to be bill reform in the state of Ohio, you know, what does that look like? Are you actually talking and hearing from the people who've been directly impacted by the system? And then are you open to hearing and receiving the feedback from them, whether it be positive or negative? And then what are the next steps? And then empowering those people in those communities in these grassroots organizations to follow through with what they've learned and to work to really have a voice in these different spaces. But I think there's a way for people to be able to come together and to have meaningful conversation. And just in talking with our various partners here in Ohio, which as Sharice just said, like extreme ends, you know, across the board, everyone that I've talked to, every single person has this shared value that freedom should not have a cost associated with it. And so 
as the country was turning its awakening or having an awakening around mass incarceration in the aftermath of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, that we should be standing on every street corner with a picket sign to say, listen, where do you think mass incarceration is being felt? Who do you think is the largest population of people experiencing mass incarceration? This notion that even I grew up believing, which was the, ma- the vast majority of people who are arrested are arrested for serious violent crime, and the world is terribly unsafe. When you look at the data, it's actually completely the opposite. 6% of people arrested in this country will ever serve time in state prison. So you're dealing with 94% of arrests, 94% of almost 11 million arrests per year being handled at your local, you know, sort of in a municipal or county court system and jail system. Of those folks, the vast majority, 80% of all arrests actually, are for misdemeanors. And so I think for us, it's been about messaging first around the facts. And then the harder conversation that we're starting to have now is confronting one's self about the system and the data and the outcomes we have and what that must say about our values. When we got here in 2006, And we sat around and said, who should care about the fact that there are gobs and gobs of people sitting in pretrial detention across the country who are simply there due to an inability to post a money bond? They've been technically legally released by the court. They've been told they can go home and they've been told the ransom associated with their freedom, right? And for listeners who think that's a dramatic phrase, let me just say this. I don't know what else you call it when someone tells you what it costs to get out of a box. And the hypocrisy implied in that is that if you have money, you're not dangerous. And so who's the number one actor in the system who cares about the size of the jail? And people might think, oh, well, you must be talking about the sheriff. But actually, no. What we knew was it was county commissioners. Given that about seven out of every $10 spent at the local level go to this criminal justice complex, It's the most significant expenditure at the county level, and county commissioners should at least know what to ask in those budget hearing questions. And so we went to the National Association of Counties and said, your constituents need to understand what's happening. So that's how we started. And once we began that, we just moved on to other system actors. And then we went to judges, and we went to DAs, and we went to public defenders, and we're just persistent. This is what it is to be from the Midwest. You are a persistent individual who does not like to be told that something can't be done. I mean, in the 2010 census, in my hometown, 24% of people in Canton uh, identify themselves as Black. The median income for a family is $35,000. Many bail amounts are $35,000, $100,000. And so this has a huge impact on people of color and people who are, you know, in the 80% of the U.S. population who barely make enough to live. And there's really good reason to care. As we draw our series to conclusion, we can't advance this movement without vocal Ohioans like you ready to transform the dimensions of our criminal legal system. Over the past year, we learned that the presumption of innocence is a luxury to those who can't afford it. People held in jail awaiting trial are two to three times more likely to take a plea than suffer the lingering consequences of a criminal history, including barriers to education, housing, and employment. 
We learned that cash bail is inherently entrenched in juvenile justice, immigration, drug policy, and sentencing. Cash bail upholds the foundation of mass incarceration because it materializes wealth-based detention, criminalizing the poor, disabled, Black, and brown folks as an immediate result. We brought in policy experts, organizers, and directly impacted Ohioans, some of whom fall under all three categories, to illustrate the ways in which innocence has always been a construction of our institutions, our police, our judges, and ultimately, our courts. We saw COVID-19 exacerbate inequities that we already knew existed across health, education, employment, and criminal legal systems. And we found that many of the rapid responses to COVID-19 have been the things we've been fighting for already. Releasing people held pretrial, expanded alternatives to pretrial detention, and a fervent demand for policy solutions that don't involve caging masses of people. This pandemic will inevitably pass, but the call for radical transformation carries on. Decarcerating prisons and jails must become the new normal. Locking up someone in jail because they can't afford it cannot remain the status quo. We'd like to thank you, Steep Road listeners, for joining us on this road, steep and never-ending as it may seem. We hope you stand in solidarity with us for the long term. Thanks again for listening. Bye. Interested in hosting a listening campaign conversation? Visit ACLUOhio.org slash listening campaign. That's ACLUOhio.org slash listening campaign. This podcast is a project of the ACLU of Ohio. Don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe. Again, we're your co-hosts, Malik Tamalaku and Selena Cumming. And this podcast would not be made possible without our village of amazing colleagues, Claire Chevrier, James Kosmatka, and Jeff Miller. Music and editing by Dan Rogan. Mix and mastering by Sean Rule Hoffman. Don't forget to follow us on social media. You can catch us on Twitter at ACLUOhio and on Facebook and Instagram at ACLUOH. Check out our bill website at ohbillreform.com. Thanks for listening.